This is 80s Revisited. I'm your producer, Jesse Sedgley. And now, your host, Trey Harris. Phyllis Neffler's life was a symphony of spending. This one. Out. I'll take the rest. I started my new meaningful life today. And I bought a whole new meaningful wardrobe to go with it. Until her husband stopped the music. You never give me an ounce of credit for anything I do. That's because you never do anything! Well, then I guess I'm going to do something right now. Approve! Mom's going to be our new troop leader. Who are you? Uh, Phyllis Neffler. Troop Beverly Hills. And welcome back to Troop 80s Revisited. Always, I'm your troop leader, Trey Harris. With me, as always, my co-troop assistant to the regional troop leader, Jesse Sedgley. Yes, I am. And we're back to talk about a movie most of our audience probably never saw, because their mom probably (laughs) didn't rent it all the time when they were little. The 1989 classic, question mark? Troop Beverly Hills. Let's get into it. March 24th, 1989, you know, last year of the 80s, and it shows. IMDb gives it a 5.8. Now, this is interesting. Rotten Tomatoes, 14%. However, 62% audience. So huge, huge discrepancy there. An astonishing, in my opinion, $18 million budget. I guess it's expensive shooting in Beverly Hills. Uh, Opened at 2.2. Yikes. Domestically would go on to gross $8.5 million. It was a bomb. However, uh, from what I found online in the circles that I don't run because I'm a, I'm a male, so I typically don't go to some of these sites when I was researching this. This is a very big cult film for a lot of uh, you know girls that grew up in the 80s, understandably so. Uh, so, you know, much like a, a lot of the movies that we do talk about, it is a it does have that cult tie to it. Uh, it was directed by Jeff Canoe. <laughs> that is his last name, but it's spelled K-A-N-E-W. It's like if a, if, if a band wanted to call themselves Canoe, that's how they spell it. So, yeah, Jeff Canoe, K-A-N-E-W. He directed Revenge of the Nerds. So, hey, he's got another cult. He's got a he did a male cult classic or a tradi- let me rephrase that a traditionally male oriented cult classic and a female cult classic. So he's versatile. And he also directed the Kathleen Turner, V.I. Warkowski. Warshawski, I don't know how you pronounce that. I'm, I'm terrible with words. So didn't do too much, although he does have two bona fide cult classics to his name. Written, uh, it was based on a story by Ava Austern Fries, spelled F-R-I-E-S, like I just got some fries with my Happy Meal. Uh, and then uh, written... Uh, the, the screenplay, I should say, was written by Pamela Norris, who did Designing Women, 64 episodes of SNL, and Margaret Oberman. Uh, she did an episode of Army Wives and wrote that movie, The Man, with Samuel L. Jackson, and I think Eugene Levy was in that. So, you know, aside from uh, Pamela Norris with that uh, history of SNL, you know, Oberman, not too much. So half the team was pulling their weight or brought the, uh, brought the rep, and the other one did not. Uh, cinematography was by Donald E. Thorin. He did Michael Mann's Thief. Uh, he's a veteran of the podcast because he did Tango and Cash and The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. Hmm. So not too bad of a, uh, you know, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're working on a Michael Mann film, you probably got some good, you got a good eye for your, you know, for your camera and your lighting and everything because uh, just go watch a Michael Mann film and you get what I'm saying. Uh, Randy Edelman did the music, and I mentioned him because he also did music for Last of the Mohicans, which is one of the best soundtracks out there uh anaconda which is not one of the best soundtracks out there but he also did dragonheart which 
to me, I saw that movie in the theater and was like, this movie's awesome. And then, you know, got it on VHS, never got it on anything else again. Cause I watched it enough on VHS to be like, yeah, I'm cool. I don't need to watch this for a while. Cause of course, like I've always said, Dennis Quaid is a poor man's Harrison Ford. However, the soundtrack to Dragonheart, that theme at the end, amazing, beautiful music. The music of Dragonheart is better than the movie. It, that score deserved a better movie. Yeah, bottom it goes line. in like other trailers, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, exactly. It's one of those that you see pop up. You know, it, it lived on beyond what it was, so to speak. Same thing with like the uh, Brian Tyler's Children of Dune score for a sci-fi TV miniseries. Uh, some of that appears elsewhere. And then, of course, uh, John Murphy's theme from Sunshine appears in a ton of trailers as well. It's one of those, you know, like just it must have been cheap or so. It's just so good and nobody knows about it. So it's cheap to get the rights to pop it in your trailer. I'm assuming. I don't know. But uh, anyway, starring the lovely and super popular around this time in the 80s, Shelley Long as Phyllis Neffler. Of course, most notable, she was in Cheers for, I think, four. It was four or five seasons before you know she left the show to pursue a movie career. And uh, Kirstie Alley took her place. Uh, but of course, some of Shelley Long's other films, Outrageous Fortune, The Money Pit, which we covered on the podcast, Hello Again. You know, she had a really big career in the 80s. You know, half of it in TV the first half, and the second half was in film. And then, of course, in the 90s, uh, I guess her big thing, and then after kind of post-80s, was the Brady Bunch movie, one and two. Uh, and then I think she, she's, I think she, uh, recently, uh, what's that show? Modern Family. I think she's uh, Julie, I forget her, the actress. I don't know the character name. Autumn used to watch it, but the character's mom. Dee Dee Pritchett. <laughs> There you go. The that, 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 that's the character. So, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, she's still there. You know, Shelly, she was Shelly Long, very funny, you know, but uh, not, you know, you don't see her too much around these days, which is a shame. Uh, but Modern Family was a big show, so that was probably a big comeback for her, I guess, in a sense. Uh, and big veteran of the podcast, uh, traditional villain jerk, hmm. uh, asshole Craig T. Nelson as Freddie Neffler, of course, coach poltergeist and one of the worst villains of all time in the 80s film turner and hooch where he did the unthinkable and will never be forgiven and of course as we mentioned before we on the way to walking into the superdome of wrestlemania 30 who did we pass craig t nelson <laughs> didn't say anything because he was he's way taller than i thought he was <laughs> and he he's not a nice i mean i mean this in terms of like he doesn't look like very approachable he look, he's, he's got a very stern look to him. Not saying anything against him. I think he's a great actor, you know, but he's, he was kind of, he was intimidating. There you go. That's the better word, Trey. Intimidating. <laughs> so, and also we kind of passed him when it was Daniel. It was like, Hey, that was Craig T. Nelson. It's like corner mile. Like, Oh, holy crap. It is. <laughs> so there's our, there's our Craig T. Nelson story again. Every time he's mentioned on the podcast, every, time. Uh, every, every single time. It's always someone's first time, right? <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, some lovely lady will be like, oh, Troop Beverly Hills, a podcast on it. Nobody's ever done that before except one other podcast. So we're bringing in, <laughs> we're expanding our reach, maybe, <laughs> if they listen to any other episodes after this one. Uh, Mary Gross was Annie Herman. She was an SNL cast member for four years, wow. uh, and which I, I can't tell you. I don't, I didn't recognize her. She seemed familiar in the face to me, you know, watching it, but I couldn't place her from anything. Uh, but she was also in uh, Practical Magic with uh, Nicole Kidman and uh, oh, what's her name from Speed? Sandra Bullock. Uh, Stephanie Beecham was Vicky Sprantz. She's the she's the uh, thick European accent novelist uh, in the film. Uh, she was a recurring character in Dynasty. Uh, lots and lots of TV, including the television version of Clue, which was called Cluedo, which is also the original name of the board game. You know, if you're on Jeopardy. Uh, but she played Miss Peacock on the show. 
which that's perfect casting. I can, I can see that from this movie, how she would have been perfect uh, for Miss Peacock uh, in the television show. Uh, Shelley Morrison is Rosa, the maid. She also played a maid in Will and Grace for like the entire run of the show, practically. I uh, didn't watch it. That's what IMDb tells me. And she was also a voice in Shark Tale. So she's got she does a lot of TV as well. You know, she's a character actress, uh, very, very successful. And speaking of successful, in their first film, Carla Gigino, I can never pronounce her last Gigino. name. G- Gigino. Gigino, is it Gigino? Okay, Gigino. thank you. Yeah. Y'all know who we're talking about. Uh, it's always sunny, named their restaurant after her. Gigino. Oh, that's right. Oh, they, yeah, they mentioned it in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, she was Chica in the film. She was, of course, Watchmen. She was the weasel, Polly Shore's girlfriend and son-in-law, buddy. Uh, Star with Nick Cage and Snake Eyes uh, in the first Sin City. Most recently, she was a uh, big favorite actress to use in uh, oh, the guy that did Dr. Sleep, the director, uh, Haunting a Hill House, uh, Mike... I can't think of his name. Uh, anyway, that guy uh, in a lot of his stuff, Gerald's Game, Haunting Hill House. Uh, so this is her first film, though. So this is a the you know you know in the comic book world, this is intro and first appearance of Carla Gugino. Uh, also starring another big television actress around you know after this film, uh, Kelly Martin as Emily. She was in Jumpin' Jack Flash with Whoopi Goldberg, who's in Hot Water right now. Uh, real quick, you know, for an ignorant statement. You know, which again, I think we've talked about on the podcast before, you know, you can't fix stupid, but ignorance, you can, you know, you can correct ignorance and everybody, you know, that's all I'll say about that, I guess. Uh, She was her, she was a regular on the really popular for a while TV show, Life Goes On with Corky. She was the sister. That's where the main thing I remember her from. And also she was the voice of the mom or the, I think, well, I'm actually, I'm not sure though. It was either the mom or the sister on Tasmania. We always like to mention anything related to Tasmania on the podcast because of our Good friend Doom Slayer in TCW. Uh, so yeah, if you like Tasmania, when I, I, every time I see, I see that name, I just want to start singing the theme song. That's still one of the best cartoon theme songs mm-hmm. of all time. If you don't know what I'm talking about, because you're a millennial or a zennial, whatever you know, or whatever Gen Z, whatever you know, go YouTube Tasmania intro, and you'll have it stuck in your head for the rest of your life. Come to Tasmania, come to Tasmania. Tasmanian devil as he starts to spit. Oh, I, I, I messed it up. Something, something like a Tasmanian devil and his closest kin. I need to go listen to it. See, I got to get my, got to get the words straight in my head again. Anyway, and uh, Jenny Lewis, some people might know her from her music career, but this was one of her early, uh, early acting roles for her. She was Hannah Neffler. She was the girl in The Wizard. She was in Pleasantville. Uh, not too long ago, uh, she was in A Very Murray Christmas. She was the waitress in the show. Uh, but mainly, you know, she's an actress and a singer, and she's a pretty good musician. Uh, she has five albums with a band called Rilo Keeley and four solo albums as well. So she's, you know, she's done a lot. She's really, uh, you know, and very, very versatile, very versatile uh, entertainer. Unlike Tori Spelling, who's in this film as Jamie, one of the Red Feathers. Uh, of course, 90210, her dad was a media mogul and put his daughter in everything. So that's that's all we need to say about that. But uh, honestly, one of the biggest, surpri- the most surprising things I found about this cast is actually the actress Betty Thomas who played Velda, the villain of the film. And she's great. She's great in this. She's a typical eighties movie villain uh, in a PG kind of way, if you get what I'm saying. Uh, but she, she was a recurring character in Hill street blues. And this was her last film as an actress until 2019, because she became a director and she's done a lot of stuff. Uh, she did the first two episodes of Doogie Hauser. She did the Brady Bunch movie, which we mentioned earlier, which reunited her with her castmate from this, Shelley Long. She directed Private Parts, Dr. Doolittle, 
And Sandra Bullock again in 28 days, or mentioning her again, I should say, in 28 days. Oh, and as of March... 28 days later. Yeah. <laughs> that trilogy makes no sense. The first, <laughs> the first part is just like, oh, okay. And then it just goes... It goes crazy with part two. Uh, but anyway, uh, as of 2018, according to Wikipedia, uh, she's one of the just two directors and the only solo director to have multiple films on the list of 17 highest U.S. grossing female directed films. That's probably not true th- now because of Patty Jenkins uh, with the Wonder Woman films. Uh, I mean, that number, has, I mean, she still has that. But I mean, the record obviously might be, you know, there's more women in that role, I should say. Uh, he might not be the only solo director anymore. In fact, I'm pretty sure she's not the only solo director anymore because Patty Jenkins and probably uh, Catherine Bigelow, uh, you know, big uh, 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 other girl. Oh, well, highest grossing, maybe not. So I know there's some new uh, new additions there for sure. I was trying to think of the girl that did Lady Bird, but I mean, those weren't like, you know, big, big grossing films. Uh, they were very good films, but not, you know, blockbusters, so to speak. But additionally, two of her films are in the top 25 highest U.S. grossing female directed films. So she's a very she's a pioneer in female directed films. So, you know, and, and never, you know, I had no clue. Mm. I knew her from this movie and she's the villain and she's great in it. Knew her as a great actress. Didn't remember anything else she was in. But that's because her destiny was to be behind the camera and incredibly successful at it. So, you know. You know, seriously, like an '80s icon, in my opinion. You know that that is not appreciated for her contribution to, you know, especially today where it's it's always a big deal. You know, to have more diversity and more different people like doing things, bigger things in Hollywood, and she's been doing it since '89. So you know, that's a that's a very important thing that more people should be aware about. So this has become a Betty Thomas appreciation podcast. There we go. Because not only is she honestly the best part of this movie, you know. She's done, you know, she's broken barriers and done incredible things, you know, and other, not just her, but she's one that, you know, I've, I've, I, I didn't know about this. So now all of you know about it. So give Betty Thomas some love, everybody. And rounding out the cast, you have cameos by Dr. Joyce Brothers, Robin Leach, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Cheech Marin, and Pia Zadora. And I always hear that she's famous and basically I had to look it up because she was like just famous on Broadway. So, uh. Cause she was in like one of the naked guns, I think too, like on the shoulders where she falls into the tube. I think part three, naked gun 33 and a third. Uh, so if you always hear Pia Zadora's name, that's she's, you know, she's a stage talent that didn't transition to movies very well. <laughs> that's that. There you go. Now you know everything you need to know for the most part. So why are we doing this movie? Well, in our bizarre six degrees of Kevin Bacon, although actually six degrees of eighties movies based on every podcast, as we're talking, I just pick one of the movies we're referencing and just say, well, you know what? Let's just do it next week. But actually, this completes our trilogy of animated intro movies of 1989. And this was the first, the earliest one, too. Mm, excuse me. Because uh, we had National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And then uh, what did we do last week? The other one. I have total brain fart. I mean, was last, last week what did was we do a last time ago. It was. Especially in you know, quarantine times. Might as well be two freaking years. Uh Seriously, I'm having a complete brain. Heavy metal, and then we did. It was. Oh uh, my god! I shrunk the kids. Thank you. Gee, wow, God, <laughs> Jesus, I am old. Well, it was my birthday last week too. So I, don't, I, don't, I actually, in my defense, I had like two birthday party. One, one for me, one for my nephew, who's born on the same day as me. Took all the heat from me turning forty by having a new nephew in the family. <laughs> so, in my defense, I had a lot of stuff going on this week. So. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and Troop Beverly Hills, all released in 89, all had animated intros. 
And this one is exceptionally notable. We'll get more into that in the trivia. But you know, we're doing it because of that. But also, this was a movie that my mom rented a ridiculous number of times. Uh, so I'm very familiar with it. So, because uh, we go to the video store, me and my brother would rent something. We'd rent, you know, we'd usually end up renting it. We'd be able to rent two things. So we'd always have an unspoken thing between me and my brother. We'd rent, we would rent one game, NES, and one movie, unless there was nothing to rent, on, you know, or something, you know, or we'd get two. One of the other. Usually we'd always try to go to get a, I'd go to the games, he'd go to the movies. And then, you know, if we knew what we were looking for. Uh, so you typically, we get our stuff, and she would, th- this movie was one that she consistently rented, like all the time. She loved this movie. And I don't see why as an adult. <laughs> uh, now, as a kid, as a kid, uh, when I was young, again, this is a male perspective. Uh, you know, I love as a kid, I loved this movie. I thought it was fun. Uh, Shelley Long is gorgeous in this movie. You know, of course, like most kids, I had a, and, and most people, you know, redheads, even though she's kind of orange headed in this one. Uh, you know, always kind of a thing for me as a kid. And to today, you know, everybody's got like their uh, preferences, so to speak. So, you know, always, uh, I never, I never minded watching this movie as a kid. It was, you know, when she ran, I was like, oh, cool. We get to watch that again. You know, and she had, her, she was, you know, we only had one VCR. We weren't rich like Jesse. We had multiple right. VCRs copying films. You know, we weren't, we weren't, you know, we weren't that well off, uh, wink, wink. But, uh, you know, so if, you know, when she watched it, what we didn't, you know, it wasn't like we'd run outside to go play because we didn't want to watch what they were watching or, you know, or maybe we go play at the NES game. But regardless, we watched it a lot is what I, the point I'm trying to get at. And as a kid, it was fine and, you know, didn't mind it. You know, all these, you know, as a, as a, as a nine-year-old, oh, the, all these cute girls, like, oh, wow, this is cool. Like, they're, oh, oh, this is so funny. This is so great. And I was, I watched, when I watched it the other night, I was just like, this film, I know it's a cult classic. And, and again, now any female listeners, I, I would trust that you, again, remember, I am ignorant on a lot of things. Most people are. Ignorance means you don't know. You're not educated enough about a particular subject where you know all the details, et cetera, et cetera. You know? So please understand, everything that I'm going to say is from a place of, if it's wrong, it's from a place of ignorance, not stupidity. Because I love to learn. So if I say anything wrong, please let me know. And I'm, I'm prefacing that because I can't tell if this movie is extremely sexist or extremely feminist. That's what I'm trying to get at here. <laughs> Please revisit it at gmail.com. Uh, yes, please. Let, let, ladies, let me know. Every, men, too. Let me know what you think. Um, let's get to the bottom of this because I, I, I went through articles because to me it seemed – well, basically, in a, okay, in a nutshell, if you haven't seen this movie, let me save you the time. Uh, however, I, I do think you should watch it and let's have this discussion because I think it's worth – it's more fun. It'd be, it's more worth to talk about the meaning and impact of this movie, what it's saying, as opposed to the movie itself. Because it's it's an '80s comedy, you got all those tropes. But basically, you know, it's the title is the movie. It's a Girl Scout troop of Beverly Hills kids. One of the kids is, you know, basically a, a pseudo Spielberg daughter. You know, the daughter of Steven Spielberg, basically. One is an uh, erotic novelist daughter. One is a dictator's nut daughter. One is a uh, uh, boxing champion's daughter. So you got all. It's all. It's, it's a bunch. It's the Kardashians. It's a bunch of rich people in their troop. You know, so it's 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 all these rich, entitled girls not getting what they want the entire movie. And, you know, it's like and then these you know the the red feathers who are the villains of the film. These are the girls that all they have in their life is the wilderness girls. And these rich girls are coming in here and usurping it with their connections to take away the one thing they have. It's it's I can't tell this is a. You know, is it a feminist movie? Is it a sexist movie? Is it a classist movie about how the rich, you know, is it, is this movie so deep 
that it's about how the rich just take every every time you know the middle and lower class find something that to latch onto, they just have to come in and take it. What's more American than that? I don't know. So again, I, I'm I'm honestly confused about this movie. Like seriously, like in terms of what it's trying to say, because on the sexist handle on the se- on, let me let me I guess I can start with that because that's the one I have the most clear perception on. So basically, uh, like I said, in a nutshell, they're trying to. They have to prove that, oh, just because we're spoiled rich kids doesn't mean we can't be wilderness girls, you know. Okay. <laughs> and these poor red feathers, you know. I mean, they have to make him the villain when all they're trying to do, all, and all they want to do is win this trophy for being the best wilderness girl. And they don't win the trophy at the end because they leave their leader behind because they want to get to the finish. They're trying to complete the mission. It's like, a, it's I, again, I don't know what this movie is trying to say. You know, they're only and, and the person they leave behind is the villain, is Velda, is Betty Thomas's character, the one you're not supposed to like. They're like, screw you, we're out of here. And they go they leave her. But then Troop Beverly Hills are just like, oh, we can't leave a wilderness girl behind. And how does the movie end? The rich people, the rich troop, are dragging the you know, the blue-collar worker behind them through a crowd to a, uh, to the the end of the the, the big square where the, the finish line is to thunderous applause. Do you see the symbology there? They're dragging her through the streets behind them being cheered. It's like that's what I'm saying. I don't I don't know what to think about this film. Literally there are so many things that are are wrong. So I don't know if this film is just dumb or genius. In terms of how, what it's trying to say, but anyway, the feminist sexist thing that I was trying to get at, I, I, honestly, I don't know. I, I can't. T- I, I really can't tell because I see some of the feminist ideals in it from more of the newer, uh, you know, more of the second wave feminism that was at the time of, the, uh, of this movie. I think it was second wave around this time. Uh, but again, ignorance. I'm ignorant on the on feminism. I've only, you know, read some Wikipedia articles to try to educate myself. So if I'm wrong, please let me know. Make me smarter by uh, ending my ignorance. Uh, but then, you know, because Craig T. Nelson in this, basically, you know, him, him and, oh, uh, for any of this to make sense, you have to see this movie. So if you haven't watched the movie, I'm just babbling about stuff you're not going to, you're not going to have any perception of. So Jesse, if you have questions, please ask them. Yep. So to help anybody as confused as you, because yep. I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain my thoughts of this as best I can, but it really, you have to have seen it. So it's basically, uh, you know, she's the rich wife of, Craig T. Nelson's character, who was the muffler man, basically, uh, made a fortune on that. They're getting a divorce. He's already seeing somebody who's his realtor. Uh, you know, who's she's not his realtor. Uh, well, I mean, she's his realtor, but she's also, you know, she's, you know, he's investing in her real estate. If you get my drift, and I think you do. Uh, so he's like already moved on. Like he's done with her. He's like, oh, you don't do nothing. All you do is spend my money. Blah blah blah. Which. He's kind of right because it opens with her coming in saying, I just felt like I needed a new wardrobe today as she drives in her expensive convertible past her gardener and her maid. <laughs> so, hey, you know, if you can afford it, you know, you're, you're, you're Kate and Jobs, not, you know, one way or the other. So anyway, so they present her in the movie as a, you know, basically uh, what's the Kardashians mom? Not uh, Let's see, Kim, Chloe, Christy, Chris. Chris, Chris, Chris. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is Chris. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, she's basically like her. She's just matriarch that just, you know, is rich and does whatever she wants. And uh, 
you know, and the, the, the change for her character is, oh, she, you know, she, she gets a stronger connection with her daughter by helping her do what her daughter wants to do. And what her daughter wants to do isn't necessarily, you know, go shopping on Beverly Hills Boulevard, uh, despite the fact that that's what they do for their quote unquote patches. Uh, so anyway, you know, and then like she takes him to court for their judicial badge. And he, and that's where we learn that he wants a divorce a- ASAP because he wants to get remarried. This is in the movie, like, you know, this is happening like so fast. He's done with her. But then he sees that, oh, she's changed a little bit. She's like nice. And, and honestly, and again, ladies out there, this is, this is, this is my read of the movie. I'm, that's why I, I can't tell if this is meant to show. Let me just finish and then we'll, let me try to do it. I'm, I know I'm all over the place on this. This is very complicated movie, surprisingly, to talk about. But anyway, uh, so what happens is, Basically, by the end of the movie, he's like, oh, they hug and they kiss at the end. He wants to get back together with her. Craig T. Nelson is gaslighting the hell out of this woman in this movie to me. It's, you know, he's not present. All, he just comes in at the end and she's and Shelly Long just swoons like, oh, it was like, I wish dad was here. Pan over. And guess what? He's dressed all in white, like a white knight. And he just comes in and kisses her. Everything's fine. We talked last week, I believe, on Mrs. Doubtfire, right? About how the ending was perfect. This is a happy ending, but let me tell you what happens after this movie. They still divorce. They, they, you know, they still get divorced. A hundred percent. He's just sticking with like, oh, I like this new you. It's gonna happen. It, like he is a he is a jerk. He is a, he is a villain. It's so they just try to tie it up in a happy ending. So I don't know. If, if that, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's sexist because, like, oh, the man's, even though he's a slime ball that doesn't care about her at all, and like, oh, on the drop of a hat is ready to be back with her. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's sexist because, of, uh, in terms of how, you know, oh, a man can just come in and get, you know, do that. That's why I'm, I'm trying to get at where I, I, I see it being sexist. A lot of the articles I've read are about, say, how, how it's about feminine, being a feminist movie, which, and again, ignorant. This is ignorance if I'm saying something that somebody doesn't agree with. You know, let's talk about it. Is it feminist because it's a female movie and it, you know, these girls are empower are being empowered, you know, they're empowering each other. However, my rebuttal against that is there's this climactic, dangerous scene where the bridge is cut by the red feathers and they have to cross a log. Big log, big fake log on a back lot, or you know, fake fiberglass log over a little ditch for the, you know, for camera tricks. And Shelly Long slips and like, oh, no, her daughter's like, I'm coming to save you, mom. And then her daughter gets her foot stuck. So then Shelly Long has to you know, go back and you know, get her daughter's foot free while they're over this ravine. And then, and then you know, it's very scary. It, would, I would, I, I, it is scary. I'd be terrified. I wouldn't even go across the log because I hate heights. I would find another way. I would rappel down. I would climb down the ravine and climb up the other side before crossing the bridge. Because uh, that's how I don't like heights. Anyway, and then how do they get across the bridge? She starts bashing the father. It's like, you're just like your father. All he does is does this stuff. And then because she's so angry bashing the father, that gives her the strength not to realize they're on this perilous balance beam of death. And they get across the bridge. And when they get across and they realize they made it, they cheer. So she's recognizing how terrible of a man she is. But the second that he comes back into her life, dressed in white, at the end, smiling, everything is fine. He is totally gaslighting her. And she's just being... That's what I'm saying. It's a sexist. I find it. I see it. I see it as sexist. And is it because I'm a man? And that's what I'm programmed to kind of see that I see that he's being that, you know, even though women wrote this, I mean, 
it's so I, I I think the ending is so ideal. That's what's giving me the sexist uh, my this opinion that it's a sexist film in terms of of that uh, to where like the man, even though he's a dirtbag the entire time, he's the he, he just has to come in at the end and say, "I love you, babe." And it, everything's fine. No, that's not how it works. This, this, if this was a real life thing, they still get divorced. And they never talk to each other again after that. Obviously. Uh, so, again, you gotta... And then, but, but then is it feminist because it's showing, you know, the plight of how... You know, in, in terms of the ending here, I'm talking, I guess, more... I'm getting so flustered and fast talking, I'm stumbling over my words. And look at this. Uh, look at this scene we're watching now with the... All the the, uh, the people buying the cookies outside of uh, Jane Fonda's studio, that one fly today. <laughs> yeah, uh, you get what I mean. You have to watch the scene. Uh, anyway, again, eighties. We know, we know things aren't always translate well from the eighties. Uh, different time, different ways, different ways of thinking. Uh, just like re- all of history is like that. Uh, it's up to you to evolve to and understand what was wrong, what was right. Uh, but is it feminist because it's showing the plight of women? You know, is it feminist because it's showing that she sticks with him? And you, sh- you know, I was infuriated by them. Like, why are you sticking with him? This is terrible for you. This is horrible for your family. You've proven your independence, even though, you know, you did it in a very posh and expensive way. You don't need him anymore. Yet you, you just go back to him like a, you know, because he's gaslighting you, basically, is my interpretation of it. So is it feminist? I guess, I guess it's both. It just depends on how you want to view it, I guess, to be honest. And I, I hate bringing so you know kind of you know this is meant to be a fun escape from reality podcast, but this of every movie we've done, this might be the most philosophically difficult one to dissect, and nobody is more surprised than me because I'm watching it just like with a two twenty twenty brain male brain, and I'm just like, this is this movie genius or is it utter shite? I don't know. I don't know. Help me. Like I'm so confused. Uh, but nevertheless, also here's here's another here's a theory I have for it, and they they should have done an after the credit scene to make this like true. I think this is you could also read this film as a proto Fight Club, in the regards that the the romance novelist is kind of telling the story, as she's writing her book. This could all be in her head, of her characters from the book, and it's her novel. Mm-hmm. Does it work? Does it work? No, because. I, it's a stretch. You you would have to have at least one scene at the end to confirm it. However, you can definitely read the film almost as that because it's so happy-go-lucky. It's so – I say happy-go-lucky. I mean it's so positive. You know, It's a happy ending. It's got a little bit of PG 80s, you know, young girl, uh, you know, teenage age appropriate drama kind of thing. But, you know, she's writing it like it's describing what's happening in several scenes. So – it's sort of, you know, again, you can view it as that. It doesn't, I know it's not true because it, 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 there's no, there's no like, it's uh, coincidental, I guess. Uh, so you can actually, but you could read this almost as Fight Club as all this being fictional, being the book that the novelist is writing. Uh, so I just thought, while I'm watching, I'm like, this is Fight Club. This is totally Fight Club. Uh, anyway, so yeah. <laughs> if you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> I know. I, I and again, I'm serious. Nobody expected this from this movie, much less me. I thought it was, I thought this was going to be a short podcast. I like. I was scrounging for information to add to it to to bulk up the length. Not much trivia, all that. But I'm watching it like this movie. Wow, just wow, legit wow. So uh, 
anyway, Jesse, you already told me you didn't watch it, so uh, I might have to watch it now. You might have like if 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 you ever have a wild hair up your ass to watch a movie, watch this and let me know if anything I said makes any sense to you because this movie is a conundrum to me, honestly. Like I just I don't I need help dissecting this movie, please. Because it's there's I had so many thoughts watching it. There's so much sim- symbolism, symbolism and symbology. It's mm-hmm. a Sanks reference. I know symbology is not a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, let's move on to the trip. Let's leave that to the people who actually want to watch it and send us some emails and comments. Uh, meanwhile, trivia. Now, as a kid, I lo- I did love the credits because it's animated. And I love the song. And I did not know till I was watching this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot it. This, this is a great song. And it's, you can make it big. So big. Jesse, does that song sound familiar to you at all? Not really. Okay, just checking. I didn't know this. It's the Beach Boys. Uh-huh. I had no clue. I thought it was some just 80s band because it's, it's very synthy. Uh, you know, S-Y-N-T-H uh, in its sound. I had no, I was like, the Beach Boys did that song? Blew my mind. There was the Beach Boys. Hmm. Uh, but it's off their album, Still Cruising from 89. It was their 26th studio album and had some of the most notable songs uh, like Kokomo, Wipeout, I Get Around, California Girls. Uh, Kokomo was actually released as a single, just a single uh, when uh, on uh, Cocktail by Tom Cruise. Uh, and again, that and Kokomo was the Beach Boys' first number one hit in the U.S. since 1966's "Good Vibrations." Uh, after that, that single, they decided to do an album of recent and classic songs. Six of the ten tracks on the album appear in movies, and it was released August 28, 1989, panned by critics, with all music referring to the band's sound by producer Terry Melcher as sounding quote like a professional '60s cover band. <laughs> And you're saying that about an album of one of the greatest bands of all time, especially in the '60s. You know, the beat. And if, if you don't know, like, what the Beach Boys really? Yeah, Pet Sounds. Go listen to the album. One of the greatest albums ever made. Pet Sounds is the album that almost broke up the Beatles because the Beatles heard Pet Sounds and were like, "Whoa, God, John, we got to do something about this. This is incredible." So <laughs> that took. That's there. that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if you could just imagine. Uh, <laughs> some people get it. Uh, in order to prove her chance of getting her part, Carla uh, Gigino actually lied about her age, claiming to be 14 when she was actually 16. And after three weeks into the shoot, she re- revealed her real age to the director, but it was too late to replace her. And this was her first film, as mentioned before. Uh, now, also about the opening the opening cartoon, Jesse, we're watching it now. Uh, of all three of the ones... Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, National Lampoons, this one. This is the best one. Yeah. Animation, everything. And there's a good reason for that because John, I'm going to, this is a horrible last name. I'm going to massacre it. Uh, John Crick Falusi, he created Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. Did the animated intro. And then when you watch watch it with that in mind, you can clearly see that. It has that complete Ren and Stimpy vibe to it. I thought the same for last week's with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, I thought... That's what inspired me. But you really see it here, like in the animals, yeah. especially. Oh, yeah. Like, just like the, 
kind of a kin- kineticness of movement, if that makes any sense. And yeah. the intro is on YouTube. You can watch it. You don't have to watch the movie. Although, again, watch the movie and let me know what you think about it. But uh, Ren and Stimpy would be uh, at, a year after this film's release is when Ren and Stimpy kind of hit cable television and became an instant hit uh, everywhere. I had the tape, the cassette soundtrack for the Ren and Stimpy show. And I always remember it because it was orange. The plastic was orange. Cassette tapes were usually clear or black or solid white. It was translucent orange. I'm like, this is so cool. And it had the log song on it. Mm. Or the, I'm sorry, the happy, it had the log commercial. And then it had the big hit was happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. Again, YouTube it if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But Ren and Stimpy, huge deal in the early 80s, uh, early, nine, uh, early 90s. It was the anchor of SNCC, Saturday Night Nickelodeon. Wait, no, wait. Was it, yeah, it was SNCC because it was like Doug, Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And then they added like that live action roundhouse show eventually. Something so, like that. I, I, both intros were Croyer films. The, uh, hmm, that's, maybe, that's why they look alike. Hmm, uh, Honey, no, I Shrunk the Kids in this one. Gotcha. Now, I didn't say anything on the in anything I found about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids if John Falusi worked on that or not. But same production company very well could have, although yeah. it doesn't say. However, he himself actually animated the Shelley Long character in the intro to Troop Beverly Hills. So, and you clearly, again, if you're familiar with the artwork of Ren and Simpy, the art style, really cool, really stylish. You can, you can, now that you, especially when you know it, you can see it clearly. It's like, why didn't I realize that before? It's plain as day. Uh, now, this, I thought this was kind of, this was a long little bit of trivia, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, the studio that produced the film were actually producing another project while filming Troop Beverly Hills. Uh, as, the, as they were filming Shelley Long on the set, a second camera was filming the crew for a zero-budget budget corporate video for the second assistant director's program that is offered in Hollywood. Uh, it included uh, interviews of a number of second ADs along with clips of them working on this film. And in one scene during the end of the movie, one of the wilderness girls falls and hurts her leg. It was up to one of the assistant second directors, second assistant directors to pick up the girl and bring her to a medic. And they use that footage in the program shooting video uh, to save money and promote it. And it was shot over 15 years ago. uh, Well, as as of 2004, uh, and it was still as of 2004, it was still used today for students wanting to enter the program. Again, that was seven, 18 years ago. So it might not be now. But as of that entry in IMDb, it was still used. Uh, another little cameo I didn't mention because I want to mention it here in the trivia. But when Velda and Annie go to the Beverly Hills Hotel, two joggers pass by. They are the Mouseketeer, former Mouseketeers, Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello. And also, speaking of 60s music, they did a lot of music back then, too. A lot of beach music. Or, I know it has a different name like for that kind of genre, but I call it you know, beach music. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You get what you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, when and this is a this is a, a a prophetic moment in this film. Right after the previous scene I just mentioned, when Velda and uh, Annie go into the hotel and and they talk to Shelley Long's character and they say, "Is this what you call roughing it?" And Shelley Long replies, "One bathroom for nine people." Yes. Well, Shelley Long would play. I forgot. I don't know the mama's name. The mom, the Brady Bunch mom, Carol Brady. God, there you go. I, didn't, I, didn't, I never watched the Brady Bunch. never cared for it. Uh, we'll play Carol Brady in the Brady Bunch movie, which is which Betty Thomas, Velda, directed. And in that movie, there are nine people who live in a house with one bathroom. If they only knew what was... I mean, are you the kind that believe in coincidences, Jesse, or do people just get lucky? Signs, Mel Gibson. Uh, 
guess I shouldn't <laughs> quote Mel Gibson. <laughs> it was a movie, not his personal life. Right. Now, now there is talk of a remake, uh, a sequel, excuse me. And this is uh, as of 2020, and I got this information from blackgirlnerds.com. According to Variety, director Oren Zegman will take on the project. Uh, he's a Los Angeles-based Israeli director. It will mark her feet, excuse me, if I, yeah, her, excuse me, pardon me, her feature film debut with an untitled sequel set to release under Sony's TriStar Pictures banner. Uh, the producer of The Greatest Showman is producing, Lawrence Mark. Uh, and I'm just reading the blurb from Variety here just to get all the info. True Beverly Hills is perhaps Long's, Long, Shelley Long's most memorable movie turn, scoring laughs as a precious fish out of water who applies her Rodeo, rodeo Drive street skills to the great outdoors. The original film has seen decades of repeat viewing, praise for its feminist themes, and tightly embraced by the LGBTQ community. Uh, the sequel screenplay is from Aisha Carr, showrunner of Woke, who is currently writing Paramount's reboot. I didn't know this. Paramount's reboot of planes, trains, and automobiles. No. Uh, Tamara Chestnut is taking a pass at the script and will also produce. The original film was based on the life of Ava Fries, which I mentioned earlier, who served as a producer and will return to the sequel as executive producer with her husband, Charles W. Fries. So, uh, again, taken directly from uh, a blurb on blackgirlnerds.com is where I got that info. And, again, everything I've ever – everything – that I could find on this, it says it's a feminist movie, but that ending to me completely negates a lot of that. A, because I mean, I understand some of the theme, the themes that are in it, but that ending, it just shows this woman just after gaining her independence, give it all up for no, like just to go back to the, the arms of her white knight in shining armor, literally wearing white coming through the crowd of gray and Brown to embrace her. And I love you. I love you. That just seems to me to spit on the face of that because it's obvious that he's, you know, he, he, there's no, unless there's deleted scenes, there's no redemption for him. He literally like, I want a divorce. And then like, wow, you're, you're doing a good job being a troop leader in one scene. And then he comes in the end, like, I wish dad were here. And what happens? Her wish is granted. Makes no sense to me. <laughs> and also these are a bunch of rich people. The, the real feminists of the movie are the, 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 uh, the red feathers. <laughs> They just portray them as so these are, you know, these are the girls trying to doing the one thing that they're good at and getting, you know, and then the rich girl, the rich girls swoop in to see what it's like to be, you know, it's like the simple life with Paris Hilton, that TV show, you know, they just come in to, to do this, that the common folk do. I'm using, you know, hyperbolic, you know, rich person, you know, movie language here, you know. And it's just, it, it makes no sense to me. That's why I need, I need education for my ignorance if I'm wrong. Uh, so, yeah, and this is a quote uh, talking about the feminist. Here's, here's like, here's, again, I could find nothing disputing that it's feminist. So I'll take people more knowledgeable's uh, experience than mine. And agree, I guess, you know, I guess it is a feminist movie, but the ending just seems to me to completely not be. But anyway, this is a, a little blurb from uh, Chelsea Steiner from the MarySue.com. Uh, she says, uh, Phyllis's husband leaves her because he wants a woman who actually does something besides shopping, dining, and living a gilded Beverly Hills life. But Phyllis insists what he calls nothing was her designing a beautiful home, raising their daughter, and crafting the posh image of success that the family benefits from. That uh, Now I'm talking. Now, the raising the daughter thing, the, that it, she it's not even presented until she's like, oh, I want to be your troop leader. Like, almost like she's trying to find something. Like, it's... What, it, it, I don't think it's told in a way to show that she's doing it except to like just do something different for herself. 
I don't know. I'll take I'll take Chelsea's word for it. Uh, now to, to continue, uh, Phyllis's unpaid emotional labor is treated like a joke by Freddie until we see what her work accomplishes, raising money for charity, parenting the ignored girls of her troop, and using her connections to sell a record amount of cookies. 100% true, but she sells a record number of cookies because her connections are billionaires. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, the red feathers are out in the hot California sun going door to door. They just have a benefit show where the girls lip sync a song and sell like 10,000 boxes of cookies, you know? Yep. Now, 100%, she parents some of the ignored girls because the girl, you know, one of the girls actually, even though they live in Beverly Hills, her dad's an out of work actor. And based on his performance in this movie, that's why he's out of work. Uh, anyway. Uh, so, you know, yes, she does. She does raise money for charity. Rich people always do that, you know, mainly as a tax write off. Uh, not say that's not what I'm not saying that's what's happening in the movie. That's my words. That's being facetious. Uh, but I mean, the parenting, the ignore girls were true. hundred percent. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, the other parts, it's not like she's like, I don't know. It just, it, it seems, it seems more, the feminist message is so blurred with like a classist one to where like, I mean, again, these are rich people with rich person problems. Not saying rich people don't have emotional problems. Everybody does. And not every not every rich person's bad. Not saying that either. But it's it's like, girl, with all this all the opportunities afforded to you, not selling a record number of cookies is the least worst thing that could ever happen to you. But for the other girls or the other troops that are there, that's one of the most meaningful things of their life. Again, I'm reading too much in I, I think I'm I'm reading too much into this movie, is the problem. <laughs> uh, but to continue uh, Chelsea's Chelsea Steiner from the Mary Sue's article. Uh, what's more, Phyllis never changes who she is to fit in with the other troop leaders, which is true. She re- maintains a rich persona the entire time. She celebrates what makes her and her girls different and inspires confidence in a ragtag crew. She sell- does celebrate what, what makes them different, and what makes them different is they're rich. Uh, and, of course, again, they do have some emotional stuff. They handle that very well, not discounting that. She does inspire confidence in a ragtag crew. Ultimately, and continuing with her article, my, her words, Chelsea's words. Ultimately, she is a positive role model, yes. Teaching her, the, her girls to care for others, yes. Even those who have been cruel to them, yes. Although at the end, it's uh, you know, there's, it's not like a comical thing. The girls vote and then start walking away from Velda. And she's and then Chelsea's like, hey, wait, no, we have to help her. She says, y'all need to choose. Are we going to do the wilderness girls thing or should we leave her here? The, the troop girls decide to leave her there and not in a jokey way like we're going to leave her and then like, you know, start to walk away and then just kidding. No, they legitimately say we're leaving her. And then Shelly Long's like, no, stop. Now I got to be an adult. We're going to help her. I have to make the decision now because you're going to make the right one. Uh, so I got I got a dispute about that. Uh, and then uh, continuing run, uh, finishing Chelsea's article, while the Red Feathers may be ruthless, Troop Beverly Hills has their heart in the right place. And again, that was Chelsea Steiner, the MarySue.com. They actually don't, based on the, the scene I just described, because Shelly Long has to, in the, she gives them the opportunity to choose right or wrong. They choose wrong. And then she has to say, nope, nope, you chose wrong. We're doing it anyway. So now that's, that is being a good example. So I do find, you know, I think there's a, there's a fun and interesting discussion to have, be had with some of the views on this film. It's, it's kind of the main thing I'm getting at. Whew, golly gee. Score, I give it a five. I give it a I give it a five because it's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. Uh, I just need to decide. You know, I need I need help determining what's the point of the movie. Oh, wait, hold on, Jesse. Uh, 
two years, uh, Shelly Morrison, I, I didn't know she was, she passed away. Uh, Ro, who played the lady who played the maid, Rosa, Shelly Morrison. I just saw you scrolling. Uh, yeah. She died, uh, unfortunately, in 20, uh, 2019 at 83. So, and she was, you know, again, great character actress. Rest in peace. Had to hear that. Didn't, did not know that until I saw you scrolling yep. right there. Uh, worth shouting out. Uh, you know, great actress. Uh, see, I give it a five. It's not, it's not, it's not a, to me, it's not a, you know, it's, it's an important movie from my childhood. So as a kid, I'd say, oh, this movie's great. I give it an eight. But as an adult, I give it a five, and that could go lower or higher based on any kind of discussion I have with somebody who watches this and sees any of the things I'm pointing out to have a better discussion of what the hell this movie is actually saying. Uh, so, but nevertheless, if you enjoy, again, it's my opinion. If you love it, that's great. Love it. If you don't, that's fine too. That's you know, opinions are great as long as you can back up your opinions with uh, you know some information. So yeah, in the real world, again, this movie released March 24th, 1989, on the same day. And I know we've had this little bit of real-world trivia on the podcast before. Time, Inc. and Warner Communications announced a plans for a merger forming Time Warner, which is now called Warner Media. So it was a huge merger at the time uh, and led to some pretty big things uh, in terms of uh, media and things uh, uh, down the road. Uh, also, near the same time uh, – actually, actually, no, these are way off. Never mind. Let me take these birthdays off because that was early March. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Not March 24th. Uh, so uh, Back to the Future uh, this week. Uh, Peacemaker, still still amazing. Yep. Eagerly. Uh, now, I'm not up to date on the Book of Boba Fett, but I, I've heard the last. I'm two episodes behind, and I've heard these two episodes are like the best ones and the reason to keep watching the show. I keep seeing those posts, yeah. So I, I got to catch up on that, but Peacemaker has taken up my time because the second – although I'm, I got to watch the new episode tonight. I think, again, I'm not sure if it came out midnight last night or when it released – uh, but Peacemaker is it, it is it's like the most popular show right now, and deservedly so. Again, if you're on the if you haven't watched it yet, watch it. Uh, best theme song ever. And again, and let me, I, I felt I, I made a mistake. I went to iTunes looking for the theme song, and if you search Peacemaker, just Peacemaker, you see the logo, and it says Peacemaker theme, and it's and it says geek music. I'm like, oh, that's an odd name. So I bought the song, the theme song. Mm. That is that is this, and and y'all are a bunch of assholes. Geek music. All you. Uh, this, that's not the original song. That, that, this, that's a group of people that hear a popular song, cover it, and then put it on iTunes to get people to buy it. Like the Transmorphers. They're the Transmorphers of iTunes, and it pissed me off because like this doesn't. When I listen to it, it's it sounds close enough, but it's not. Per you know, like the second the, the music sounds spot on, but the vocals come like this is a, this must be a different version. So then I do my due diligence after spending a buck twenty nine, uh, and it's a if you want the theme song. It's about a, uh, I think a, it's a I think it's a European band called Wigwam, W I G space W A M, which is I believe an Indian term for a like a kind of like a yurt. I'm not sure if it's a te- considered a teepee. It's a specific dwelling, if I remember correctly. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Uh, but it's a song. It's called "Do You Want to Taste It" by Wigwam. That's the theme song. That's the version you need to get on iTunes. It's on iTunes, but it's not like you have to search that particular one. Don't search Peacemaker. Because you have to have this jam to blast when you're working out, when you get up in the morning, when your alarm goes off. The song is killer. It's the best. And it's, it's an old song. It's an old song, but I've never heard it before this show. And it's like, it's one of those songs I, that, you know, I'm, some people don't like listening to song, some songs on repeat. But like when I first hear a song and I really like it, I listen to it on repeat, you know, for a while. A, to kind of get the lyrics down, listen to the words. But because, you know, it's a damn good song. This song is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, after you watch the show, Support Wigwam, not geek music. In fact, I downloaded two of their albums, and they're great. 
uh, all their songs are kind of in that vein of how the intro song sounds. Uh, so shout out to Wigwam. They're great. Great, great band. Great song. Uh, I'm a fan and they're, they look amazing. They look like they're from the eighties. It's like, they're like eighties <laughs> sort of glam Motley crew poison, like that kind of era. They, and they, they sell, you know, it's like the darkness. Remember the darkness where the darkness yeah. was trying to be like sixties and seventies. Wigwam is like eighties, like glam metal and that kind of stuff. They're great. Uh, but they got, the, you know, the darkness, they were talented, but it's so much goofiness kind of in, in, in the music where, uh, <laughs> Wigwam again. I've only I'm only two albums in, and I've only listened to one album like multiple times. But they got some great tracks. Where like at when I when you hear the song, some of the songs, I I could have easily thought they were from the '80s as opposed to you know recently. So shout out to Wigwam. Uh, one other Back to the Future thing, of course. Everybody, if, if you're a long list time listener to the podcast, you know my spirit animal is a shark. I love sharks. I love watching bad shark movies. And last night, I think I might have seen one of the worst ones ever. It just came out. It's called The Requin, which is French for shark. So it's it actually should be called Le Requin or Le Requin. I'm not sure how the accent is on it. But it stars none other than Aerosmith music video 90s it girl for 20 minutes, Alicia Silverstone and her and her husband. Uh, on a com- pretty much a completely backlot green screen movie. The green screen of this movie is terrible. Oh my! It, 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 this is a movie that's so it's so. I'm telling you, it's so bad. It's worth watching. But I will tell you this: if you want to watch it for a bad, entertaining shark movie, fast forward till they're lost at sea. Get get past the first thirty minutes where nothing happens. Some of the worst exposition I've ever seen in a movie. But anyway, the gist is they're staying at one of those little huts on the water in Vietnam. Or some of, I'm pretty sure it's Vietnam based on the language, from what I could tell, and the fat and the the stuff. Uh, but you know, like those huts that you see, like they're over the water. So you're you're basically your hotel room is like over the ocean, and a hurricane comes and blows their hut out to sea. <laughs> and through uh, trying to signal a ship, they burn it down, and then jump in the water, and are now floating. And the husband's leg is broken, so naturally it's bleeding. And it doesn't attract bull sharks. It doesn't attract oceanic white tips or hammerheads. It attracts the typical movie shark, the great white shark. (laughs) And this is one of those horrible movies uh, where they use like live action shark footage. Like, you know, it shows her splashing on the surface like, no, no. And then it cuts to this underwater shot of a real shark, like eating, you know, a seal. (laughs) Uh, And then back to her like, stop, stop. So, but the, the CG is like legit. It's so laughable. That's the the main reason I watched it to the end was for just how pathetic the CG was. And this movie had like an I think it had an eight point five million dollar budget. Watch that if you want. If you like shark movies or you like bad movies, watch the Requin and explain to me how they spent eight and a half million. They must have spent eight and a half million dollars for the entire crew to go stay at this island resort. Well, film, you know, or to get shots because I don't see how you can film it on. It was filmed totally in Orlando, at Universal. I don't see how you spent eight point five million dollars filming at Universal. The uh, the CG shark doesn't match the uh, the dummy shark for a couple of shots. It doesn't match the road. It's so it is so terrible. And Alicia Silverstone, hey, in the nineties, I'd have cut off my left nut to be your boyfriend. But you are a terrible. One of the like this is a raspberry movie, the, like wow. some of the worst acting I've ever seen in my life is in this movie, and I've seen some bad acting. 
This is not even so bad it's good. This movie is terrible, but terrible in a good way. If you thought, you know, hearing her say things like, seat me up, Uncle Alfred, was bad in the uh, late 90s, this is worse. Look at that cover. Look at the cover on IMDb. That tells you everything you need to know. And as a matter of fact, check out the rating. It's probably the lowest rated movie I've ever watched. I, I, yeah, I've never seen a rating that low. 2.4. And honestly, it deserves less. This movie is it is it's legitimately terrible. I will never ever watch it again, but I will always bring it up as a uh, touchstone of bad effects, acting. Everything about this movie is terrible. Yet somehow somebody gave these people eight point five million dollars to make this. They could have given me and Jesse. $4 million and we could have made $4 million movies that have been um, infinitely better than this. Yeah. Infinitely. Hell, we could have made uh, with $4 million divided by four because at 250000 we could have done 16 movies that were better than this. <laughs> this is a, like, yeah. I, the, when I read the budget after watching, I was like, there's no way. Where did that money go? Did they is Silverstone such a big get they had to pay her like eight million and then spend the other half million on the movie? Like legit, it is legitimately terrible. If you like bad now again, oh and the logic of this movie makes Sharknado look like Schindler's list. <laughs> and this movie's Inglorious Bastards. And I mean that in terms of like historical accuracy is what I'm getting at, in terms of like you know, what you know, decisions that are stupid. And more, you know, it's more realistic that Sharknado, a Sharknado would happen than everything in this movie would happen. Legit. Oh God, that movie sucked. I'll never get that t- that hour and a half back, but it's worth it just to have that touch again. That moment, I now know the worst movie I've ever seen. You know, I would watch Xanadu again for Olivia Newton John. Uh, honestly, I would watch Garbage Pail Kids again before I'd watch this movie. Wow. Legit. This is this this movie is terrible. It's so bad. Uh, I only found one positive review. Anyway. And that person probably worked on the. It's the director. It's, it's the, the director. director. Yes. Seriously, it is so bad, so awful. And again, I've I've watched Santa Jaws. I've watched Avalanche Sharks. I've watched Lava Sharks. I watched Ghost Shark. Ghost Shark's a goddamn masterpiece compared to this movie. Ghost Shark actually is pretty damn funny though. You should watch Ghost Shark. <laughs> it's great. It's like one. Of, it's like the best worst shark movie. So yeah, uh, that's all I got to watch this week. Although there's a lot of uh, new movies on demand that have just come out. I don't want to catch up on uh, House of Gucci uh, and the uh, Del Toro's new film Nightmare Alley uh, came out on VOD I think today or yesterday. So really want to see that. So next week we'll have some more entertaining or actual, hopefully knock on wood, good movies to talk about. But uh, Jesse, anything new in your neck of the woods back over there in Capital L, Capital A? Uh, watch the Royal Rumble. Oh, oh, B two. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, Did you the same way? Did you hear about like Shane got fired? <laughs> I think it's I think it's a uh, part of the show. Really, you think it's all like a work? I think it's going to be a work for uh, him versus like Austin Theory in WrestleMania. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, because interesting because um, you know Vince fires Shane and Vince's boy is Austin Theory, his new boy. So it's going to be ah. Like yeah, I don't know okay. when it's going to start to make its way to TV, but you know, I don't I don't really watch the the shows as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. But if if Austin Theory starts talking about Shane, then you will definitely know. Oh you're yeah, they don't, you're not going to say it without an intent, right? Yeah, but that rumble, man. Like I look, I look like the most exciting 
wrestling moment every year for me is the Royal Rumble. And I was just like, this is yeah, it this was, is this is terrible. The women's rumble was not great. It was slightly but it was, better. Yeah, it was so much better than the men's. Oh, just and then you know the whole like the the Reigns match was you know the I I, I like the storytelling in it. Right. It that, depends on if it's gonna if it's gonna pay off. You know, at WrestleMania, like what it's building to. When the show started off that way, I was like, oh, this might actually be kind of decent because you know they put that yeah. up front with uh, you know. A bit of storytelling in it. It just, it that was probably the high of the show. <laughs> and then yeah, like one hundred percent. Yeah, and it wasn't and then, even uh, that high. Know, <laughs> yeah, the the Brock match had a couple of good spots in it. Uh, that was about that's all I thought of that. You know, the and then was, you know, Reigns coming out. I was like, okay. And again, I watch wrestling twice a year in terms of watching it live, and it's the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania. Everything else I get from YouTube channels, and Jesse. <laughs> You know, yeah, when you fill me in on like on that kind of stuff, you know. So just like okay, this you know okay, I see what they're doing, and then the rumble, just waiting for like you know some pop of something. It was just like you know, honestly, and the the second Kofi blew his spot, I was like, right. this is done. Yeah, this is this is done. Like the one part, the one moment that could have been like yes, <laughs> nope. And and to his defense. I don't think anybody could have stopped their feet from touching the floor without breaking yourself in half because he right. was the momentum like, was too much. He was like 15 feet in the air off the top onto the the side rail with just that. I mean, I don't know if anybody could have done something about actually injuring themselves. And if they would have just kept the ca- if they would have waited for the camera angle, you know, just to maybe not show it. You know, cause they, I mean, they had the spot. You know, they knew it's coming, so they they showed it live. Yeah. They could have cut like and showed it from the back view and like, oh, ref's, ref's not signaling. His feet didn't touch. The-. No, they could have totally played it off, except for the few people that would have saw it on the front row. Yeah, but I mean, you know, for us live, it still could have been like, oh, because every time he comes out, it's that's one of the highlights of the rumble. Sometimes it's the highlight of the rumble. <laughs> and when, when you know, when when that happened, I was like, I'm like immediate. Like when I saw him go through, I'm like, this is it. Like, oh my god, like holy. Oh, and the, like from like that excitement roller coaster went up, and then the power could just. Mm-hmm. I was done at that point. Just like, oh man, like that sucks. Well, then, oh, and then you know, that, and then I was because he came out, came in kind of late too, if I remember, you know, or maybe mid. Yeah. And it was just like all the momentum got sucked out for me when that happened, and then, you know, the second Lesnar, you know, you know, yes, it's just like I don't even need to watch. I know what's going to happen. There's, I see what I see what they're doing that like. The road to WrestleMania was just paved. <laughs> that yeah. you know, I saw someone post like right after he lost the, his belt. Someone said, "Congrats, Brock, on your Rumble win two hours before it happened." <laughs> Not yet. Wow. Yeah, because <laughs> it was yeah. so predictable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Five point four on IMDb for the Royal Rumble. Yeah, I was. So disappointed. I look. I look like every year for the Rumble. Well, not this year because it my auto. Because uh, it was on Saturday and not Sunday. Yeah. We had birthday. It was a, a birthday dinner that night. So basically, right when the women's women's Rumble ended, we had to go eat. So when, the second we got home, and the, like I was asking you, it is tr- like Peacock had it right up right after. So immediately got home, picked right back up where we left off, finished the Rumble. Didn't see any spoilers. Although I kind of wish I had. I might have had better expectations. Right. Because I'm watching it, you know, little tipsy from our night out, full belly, you know, just like, all right, very, you know, awesome dinner, Royal Rumble. Like, oh, like, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I'm just turning the TV off and just go to bed moping. <laughs> but yeah, that was, ugh, ugh, mm-hmm. so disappointing. 
so so disappointing. And the even the women's round when Ronda came out, I was like, oh, there's your, you know, yeah, there's the winner. I mean, like you know, that's one of the best things about the Rumble for me, at least, is when you don't know, you know, you like, oh, maybe it's Taker, maybe it's like, oh, well, who could like you? Know, you're trying to think who's going to win, and they still surprise you. That's why when Batista came out that year at like 30 or 29, I was like, oh, he's, you know, mm-hmm. obviously he's going to win. You know, but then when you have those matches, I can't think of an exact year, but, you know, there's been many. Where like the, the final four, like, you know, it's like I'm just spitting out names here for an example. Like, I know it's not an actual rumble unless it's psychologically in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, well, you know, you got Cena, Michaels, uh, Orton and Triple H. Like, OK, OK. You know, well, see, who's no, now who's going to win? You know, you have that, you know, that's where like, you don't know. I mean, you know, you know, but you're not sure. You know, it's like a screen movie. I know this person's 100% the killer. <laughs> this other person though, and eh, it's, it's gotta be one of them. You know, mm. it, it's a, the best rumbles go to that moment, that end moment, like, like Chris, you know, you're not supposed to mention his name. And I, and I, you know, I understand why Chris Benoit versus the giant or the big show, excuse me, where, you know, you, 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 I mean, is is the Big Show finally going to get his title? You know, his big push, or is Benoit going to get it at this point? And then Benoit, like, you know, despite it being Chris Benoit, it's an ama- it's one of the best Rumble endings ever. Where basically, ben, you know, he basically hooks Big Show like like death grip around the neck and puts his legs on the road. You know, of course, we know it's manufactured to happen this way, hmm. but you know, he you know he uses you know the, to be the announcer. He's using his momentum. Benoit's gonna do it. He's gonna do it. By God, by God, we got a champion. We got a new runner. Benoit did it. <laughs> you know, and then gets the big show out and wins the run. You know, unexpected. Uh, Bret Hart and uh, Lex Luger from '92, maybe. It was the year of WrestleMania 10. So whatever year WrestleMania 10 was, was the rumble where Luger and uh, Hart went over at the same time and they did it right. There was no camera waiting for them to fall. You just see them go over and they're like, they don't know. They don't know who won. So then they both got the title shot at Yokozuna at WrestleMania. Hmm. WrestleMania 10, where Men on a Mission had that rap song promoting it and it was dope, yo. Uh, so yeah, that's, this, I guess we're a wrestling podcast now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta tell Ben to make sure because I know he's been super busy with wrestling and everything. I make tell him like gotta listen earlier because he usually checks the in for the Doomslayer shout out. Uh, I gotta listen a little earlier to get the, all, all the wrestling, all the wrestling info. Let us know your thoughts, Ben, on the Rumble because uh, you got that inside wrestling point of view, being a actual wrestler. Yeah. So yeah, anything else, Jesse? Yes, I mean, not really. Not much has come out this nah, past that's week pretty much for it. the most part. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. Cool. Would be cool to. They just do. They need to do another greatest Royal Rumble this year or something. They need to make. They need to do a do-over. So bad. The Rumble yeah. is just so. It's so. Oh man. They won't. And honestly, until you, yeah, they won't. I uh, of course, but when the, when you mentioned it, I had forgot about it already. That's how like <laughs> you know, like when you, like oh yeah, it was this week. You know, <laughs> I keep like, saying in my head just to remember. Yeah, because <laughs> it was it was that friggin bad mm-hmm. uh we did get an email although i didn't have it up but it was just uh, a good friend uk pete wishing me happy birthday so pete i say thank you very much for the birthday wishes i appreciate it appreciate it and i did say last week uh jay osiki with uh, the heavy metal stuff there were so many links i haven't got to get uh, i have a draft of the post to post on facebook for that just haven't finished it yet because i wanted to kind of you know i didn't want to just copy and paste your email i wanted to kind of have some info with it like you sent to me for anybody that was looking at it. so that is going to come on the facebook if you are looking for those uh, super in-depth links to all the heavy metal stuff uh, that J.O. Siki sent us. Uh, we'll have that on the Facebook group 
but for your heart's content to delve into the world and the backstory and the mythology of heavy metal as soon as I kind of get it curated a little bit. But as always, I need, we need your emails about this movie, Drew Beverly Hills, because <laughs> it is so confusing. Anyway, 80srevisited at gmail.com, on Facebook, 80s Revisited Podcast, on Instagram, 80s underscore revisited. Check out our friends Cajun Toy Review, a good friend John, and of course the BAMcast and TCW for all your Doomslayer and Ben Wyatt, good friend Tasmania uh, needs for that sexy Australian voice. Uh, or Tasmanian voice, excuse me. And as always, leave a review. Let us know how we're doing, good or bad. You can say we suck. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Just leave a review. Don't just say one star, garbage. Say one star. Trey is an idiot because of this, blah, 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 blah. You know, give, as long as you give a reason why, so we can we can grow and like, okay, this person said this. He's the only person, or here, that they are the only person that said this, so screw them. We're going to keep doing it. You know, we don't know, we don't know if we're doing bad unless you say something. So, Good, bad, put them together, and what you got? Hey, he's a Risen Podcast, what you got? So next week, don't know yet. I'm trying to get trying to get Bond month ready to go. I'm trying to finish get get through the Bond films to get to the eighties. I got one more to go, but again, there's I didn't realize even the old ones were as long as these new ones. Not quite as long. So I'll post it on social media. Follow us on Instagram that's where, and Facebook. That's where everything is cross posted. And Twitter actually it's supposed to. Uh, but I don't check Twitter. Uh, because I have to, you know, I gotta, have, I gotta have a standard. I gotta have a lot. I gotta, I can only do so much in a day. <laughs> Twitter's not one of them, and I don't get it. I'm waiting for Twitter to die. So there's the next thing. I'll jump on that one. Good luck. Although I think that was TikTok. <laughs> Too late. Yeah, TikTok. Uh, yeah. I'm just gone. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I just gotta stick with what I know. Stick what you know, like the '80s. That's what all the dads, you know, everybody said in the '80s. Just stick what you know. That's an '80s dad advice for that. So anyway, I'll post on social media what next week's movie is. Hopefully, it'll be Bond. If I can get there, if not, I'll post something. Maybe I'll, you know, I was thinking, oh, sorry. I just got to feeling a little bad. You know, I mean, this is a pandemic and we, you know, it has been a long time since we've had a case of sequelitis. So maybe <laughs> sequelitis is, maybe I'll get another case of sequelitis. I don't know. Regardless, we'll think of something. But until next week, I remain Trey Harris. Jesse Sedgley. Cowabunga! This show and more on Facebook.com slash AwesomePods. And follow us on Twitter at AwesomePods. Pods.